I'm Fred Eichler, and I have been a lifelong admirer of Fred Bear and his legacy. As a kid growing up reading Fred Bear's field notes and watching his adventures on TV instilled in me a passion to experience the many things Fred got to experience in his hunting career. I'm excited to introduce each new episode of this digital field notes series and to continue the legacy of a man that had a monumental impact on not only me, but also on the sport of archery. Field notes. Chapter 7, Kispiox River, British Columbia, 1960. This was a hunt for grizzly bears in the fall of 1960. We traveled to Hazleton, which is on the highway that connects Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia. We were to hunt with Love and Lee Outfitters in the beautiful Kispiox River country. The river is famous for its steelhead fishing Salmon also swim up from the ocean to spawn in its tributaries. These spawning fish are the main diet of grizzly bears during the summer and fall. There were four in our party. Nick Knickerbocker of Charlestonville, Virginia, George Griffith, Chuck Knoll, and myself from Grayling. Nick and George were interested in the steelheads, and Chuck and I were after bears. Monday, September 19th, 6 p.m. Got into Smithers yesterday at 11 a.m. A fine flight from Vancouver via Prince George. Jack Lee and Bill Love met us at the airport with two station wagons. Went to Hazleton for last-minute supplies and then to Bill's house for lunch and on to Jack's place where we changed from street clothes. Also changed from station wagons to Jeep pickups for the 20-mile drive to Jack's hunting cabin at Coral Creek. Mrs. Lee, who will do the cooking, and Bob Roy came with us. Bob is from Vancouver, here to do some hunting also. It took about two and a half hours to get to camp. Chuck Kroll shot two roughed grouse along the way. Chuck and George rode with Bill, Nick, and Bob in a pickup, and I rode with Mr. and Mrs. Lee. The road was rough as we followed the Kispiox, finally reaching camp just before dark. A beautiful spot on a high bank overlooking the river. Eleven saddle and pack horses munch grass in the enclosure that surrounds the camp. Our cabin, for the four hunters, is new. About 18 by 20, solidly built from huge spruce logs, a spruce floor and a roof covered with tar paper. 
Wilford Lee, son of the Lees, is here to help with the guiding. We got a late start this morning, much gear to sort and assemble. Nick, George, and Wilbur went fishing. Chuck and I did some practicing with our bows and then took the Jeep upriver to check two places Jack had baited for grizzlies. No fresh signs at either place. Went to the coho hole, had lunch, and fished until an hour ago. Nick and George joined us there. They had four coho, but no steelheads. We are sitting on a log about 200 yards from a bear carcass, a bear killed by earlier hunters. Have just been in to see if there were any bears there, going in again before the light gets too poor for pictures. Friday, September 23rd, 5 p.m. Have not written since Monday. Too much to do and too fresh for my office chair to be other than dead tired after the heavy dinners we eat following a day of vigorous outdoor exercise. This country is forested with spruce, hemlock, balsam, poplar, willow, lodgepole pine, cottonwood, and some white birch. Ground growth is extremely heavy, varying from thimbleberry and wild rose to bracken higher than my head. Alder grows to an amazing size along the river and in draws. The spruce grows tall and slender, each one trying to outdo the other in an effort to reach sunlight. Beautiful timber for cabins such as ours. Tuesday, we packed waders, fishing tackle, cameras, lunch, and bows, and hiked into a point of land made by a hairpin course of the river. It is about two and a half miles and will hereafter be referred to as the point. Jack has a bait there, which we checked, and then to the end of the point for fishing. Caught quite a few Dolly Vardens, several coho, some cutthroat trout, and hooked a fine steelhead, but uh, did not land him. Nick and George fished at various holes along the river and caught many fish, but no steelheads. Fine weather, temperature just right, and the sun shining. Wednesday, Bill, Chuck, and I checked the two upper baits to find them unmolested. Did some fishing with assorted luck and came back to camp to learn that George had broken our luck and caught a steelhead 32 inches long. Headed for dinner. Excellent. Wednesday night it rained and Thursday morning the river valley was filled with fog. A good sign for a clear day, said Wilford. George has been suffering with a toothache and he and Jack went into town for some attention. Nick and Wilford hiked into a lake and had some good sport catching cutthroat trout on flies. Bill, Chuck, and I planned a trip to the point to check out the bait and to fish if there was no action at the bait. When we got to the river, it was high and not very clear. This ended our fishing plans, so we decided to still hunt and visit the other two baits. I should have mentioned that Bob killed a moose on Tuesday and Bill put the entrails on our bait site number two. We found that a bear, a blackie, we thought, had visited the bait and liked what he found. We went in to have a look this morning. He had been back during the night, but was not around then. 
Resting with my back to a spruce tree about 400 yards from the bait, it is now 6.45, and we have been in to look twice. We'll go in again in a few minutes and stay till dark. It is already too dark for pictures. Wednesday, October 5th. It has been a long time since I last wrote up my notes. Except for the fine food and good companionship, there has been a decided lack of excitement. We take horses frequently and have pleasant rides through the woods, and always an enjoyable campfire and tea boil at lunch places. Chuck slipped off a log and wrenched his knee badly last week. He limped around camp on a homemade crutch for a few days, but he's up on his own again now. In fact, he's doing fine. Early last week, Jack and I hiked from the end of the trail at Sweeten River up to Nangis Creek. Jack packed a rubber boat and I packed camera gear and lunch. It was quite a hike and rough going for three hours. We saw two bull moose but could not get a shot. We floated down the Kispiox and checked the bait on the point. Had hoped to see a bear or a moose but saw only eagles and ravens. Both black and grizzlies are scarce. The humpback salmon run did not occur this year, and the bears seem to have gone to high country for berries and to dig out whistlers and other rodents instead. Of our three baits, only one has been visited, and that, we think, by a black bear. Apparently, he is feeding nights, as we can never catch him there. Although the tidbits we leave each time are always gone, he is a clever bear and does not seem to mind man's scent. Sometimes does his dining right in our blind, overlooking the bait spot. Nick and George went home last week, leaving Chuck and me to concentrate on our hunting. It was then that the bears began coming to both the bait on the point and the one in the Sweeten. This was too much action all at once, as they are too far apart to watch by one hunter. So on Monday, we split up. Chuck and Wilford went to the Sweeten bait and found a big black eating there, with a grizzly standing up on the tall grass beyond watching him. The wind was not good and both scampered off before they could get a shot. Jack and I visited the point bait every hour, making our last trip at 7.30, but the bear did not show up. Yesterday, we all went together to the Sweeten bait but found that it had not been touched. Decided to let it cool off for a day while we went to the point for our hourly visits. The bear had been there sometime since the evening before, but he seems to be a wise one. It is now 3 p.m. Jack and I have a fire at the point, rode in at 10 o'clock. Bruin had had another meal since last evening, but we still have not seen him. We'll have another look shortly, and then again just before dark. Plan to stay until we cannot see. Chuck and Wilford went up to Sweeten this morning. Friday, October 7th. We checked the bait again at 7 p.m. and stayed there until long after dark. Wind was not good. We heard the bear, or bears, just at dusk. Heard them break dried parsnip stems and also heard them growl. Jack thinks there are several, including a sow and a cub. They made a half circle in front of us, but would not come in sight. 
We had built our blind on high ground overlooking a river flat, grown up with fireweed, bracken, and wild parsnip. Darkness comes here now at eight o'clock. We got back to camp at 10 to find Chuck and Wilford in high spirits. Just before dark, Chuck got a good hit on a beautiful grizzly. They found the bear about 200 yards away, a fine mature animal, silvery blonde on top, tapering to black legs and feet. The arrow had gone through the hindquarter, into the abdominal cavity, and into the lungs. Late in the afternoon, Jack and I rode up to the point again to have another try at the bears. Got there at 7.30 and had excitement soon after. The bait was almost cleaned up, but we heard something walking in the weeds. The bears were circling again. I could faintly see a place about a hundred yards out on the flat where the weeds were trampled down and saw three bears come in at the far end of it. Our little one, definitely a cub, came right toward us through the opening. He was whining and squealing like a little pig. The bigger bears moved off into the weeds to our left. We stayed until it was too late to see anything. The day before we arrived at Jack's camp, a black bear had torn up his smokehouse and eaten the fish he had in it. Just back of our cabin, the ground sloped sharply down into the river. The smokehouse was on the edge of this bank. It seemed like a good place to have a try at a black bear. We hung some spawned out salmon on a pole that bent over with their weight. To the end of the pole, we fashioned a fish line and ran it up the slope and in through a crack in the cabin wall to a cow bale we hung from a roof beam. There was no action for over a week. Then, two nights ago, we were awakened by this alarm. The night was not dark, and I had all I could do to keep from laughing out loud as Chuck tiptoed out towards the drop-off in his shorts, bow in hand, through the frosty night. I had unfolded some corrugated cartons and fastened them light-side out on stakes just behind the bait to silhouette the bear so he could see him in the dark. At the top of the bank, we placed some balsam boughs as a sort of blind for the shooter, but no bear was to be seen. We waited a few minutes, then crawled back into our sleeping bags. Ten minutes later, we had another alarm. I stayed in my snug bag, and Chuck made another trip. The bear was there, but saw him as he raised up and made off in haste. No more alarms that night. Bruin had taken the fish and a moose heart, however. We have replenished the bait, but have not had our sleep interrupted since. We sleep with the cabin door open. Bats, apparently looking for a place to spend the winter, fly in and out all night, and last night I awoke to the clatter of small claws on the bare floor. By the time I found my flashlight, there was nothing there. I suspected a marten as we have seen them several times around the camp. Last Friday, having no baits to attend in the morning, Jack suggested that we go down to nobody much to hunt a big mule deer that both Nick and Chuck had seen there twice on this hunt. Might also see a moose, Jack said, and we could look for a bear sign. What is nobody much, I asked, 
And he explained that it was a creek that got its name when the road was being built through here. The creek required a fill, and during the work, until the fill was completed, nobody much could get across it. We had gone just a short way climbing to the top of the ridge when Jack stopped, pointed, and whispered to me, there's a bear as big as a house. Strolling through the spruce and hemlock 40 yards away was a very big, dark-colored bear. He measured up to the qualifications of a big grizzly. His head was small compared to his long body. He was going in the opposite direction from us, just passing in the bush, I thought. Jack was in the open and could see better than I could. After he was out of sight, I blew my varmint call. Jack, who could still see him, said he turned and made a few steps our way and then stopped. Not knowing this, I gave another blast and he moved off to fade into the trees. We made a circle to try to head him off. Reaching a high point, we waited and listened heard a stick crack down in a ravine. We went down there and found where he had taken off on a run. Backtracking, it was determined that he had been circling us inside of our circle, apparently got our scent. We proceeded then down the ridge that terminated at the outlet of the lake. Jack went down one side of Nobody Much Creek and I took the other. About halfway to the road, while stopping on a knoll to look and listen, a bull moose came out of the alders in the creek bottom, about 50 yards behind me. Apparently, he had seen or winded Jack as he would stop frequently to look back. I was standing in thimbleberry bushes up to my chest. The bull came around the knoll at the bottom with nothing visible but his back. As he slanted up the draw, it was not until he started to enter the thick bush that I could see his rib section. The distance was perhaps 45 yards, and the arrow hit well. The bull turned and ran about 50 yards down toward the creek, and then walked another 50 yards until he went down. The kill was timely. We had been on a diet of fish for the last few days. It was well placed, too being in the territory of the big grizzly who would find the entrails and make himself available, we hoped. The dignity of bears always amazes me. The one we saw today knew we were there, but walked by us without looking our way. I have seen it before in both black and grizzly. They are clever animals with an abundance of patience, plus a good sense of humor and a surprising ability to think. Jack Lee, who is 54 years old and has spent one-third of his life hunting or trapping in the bush, says that this fellow was the largest bear he had ever seen. Jack is a modest person, not given to exaggerate. Information that might seem a bit egotistical is hard to pry from him. Hunting and trapline tales flow rather freely, though. Take the case of the white black bear. Jack was trapping on the Seminette River in Alberta a few years ago, and a small black bear had been pestering him around camp. Although he had had several opportunities to shoot him, he had not felt inclined to do so, as any company was welcome in his lonesome existence. To keep his grub supply intact, 
He had hung edibles on a high pole under a tarp. Among the items was 20 pounds of flour left over from a 100-pound sack. Returning to camp one rainy evening, Jack was startled to see a white bear dart away from the area. It was not hard to guess what had happened. The bear, standing on his back legs, had ripped the flour sack open and flour poured down on him over his wet fur and clung there as he ran off. Another story concerned a trapper named Frank Eckland, who had lived on the Findlay River. His trap line was made up of a string of cabins on the Ospita, which was a tributary of the Findlay. Frank carried a 30-40 Craig and had considerable respect for the grizzly bears. Returning to his cabin one day, he discovered that a grizzly had broken in. The bear had created wide and general disorder. What he didn't eat was broken or destroyed. His stove was torn apart and the pipe smashed flat. Realizing that this was probably a gaunt, hungry bear, or he would be in hibernation, Frank felt that extreme caution was necessary and made a high cache by building a platform on four spruce trees he had sawed off about 10 feet up where he had stored his food, including a moose quarter. This was no ordinary bear. He chewed two trees off, ate the supplies, and was asleep in Frank's bunk when he came back. Tuesday, October 11th. We have been watching the baits, but never seem to have our visits timed with the bear's eating schedule. A big grizzly has taken over at the black bear bait. We packed my moose head in there and wired it to a log. Two nights ago, he came in, tore it loose, and toted it off. An Indian killed a moose near the road here several days ago, and we sewed the remains up in the hide, dragged it, and packed it in for bait yesterday. We went in in daylight this morning, but the bear had not been there. We do not sit and wait at the bait. Wind currents are too unpredictable. We go in, look, and come straight out. If the weather is bad, as it was this morning, we hole up under a spruce, dig a nest in the pinecone cuttings like a bear, and sometimes take a nap or write notes, as I am doing now. We had a hard rain last night, and through part of the morning. The Kispiox is running higher than it has been since we came. A big boulder upriver from camp is totally submerged and driftwood is coming down. The weather has not been cold. Only two frosts, but the season has taken its toll on the leaves. Poplar and cottonwood are shedding first, with the birch trying hard to retain theirs. Bracken is completely dead and brown, and the fireweed and alder leaves are turning black. Everything was green when we came, but now the hillsides of dark spruce and hemlock are gilded with aspen. It's becoming monotonous to write that we are sitting under a spruce tree, but we are, and it's raining. Jack is napping, and Chuck is reading a paperback. Events of the last 24 hours have been interesting. Yesterday morning, it was decided to remove the remains of my moose to the site where the black bear had been living high off our offerings. After this chore was finished, and it was not a small one, we went by jeep to the fork of the Kispiox and the Sweeten. 
It is on the point of the land formed by these two rivers that we have set the bait. It is here also that Chuck shot his grizzly. We got in there at 6.45, disheartened to learn that another grizzly had found our bait and covered it with grass. This is a sure sign of a grizzly. Blackies never do this. Just a year ago, on the Delta River in Alaska, I watched a sow grizzly with a cub cover a caribou carcass. Walking away from the carcass, about 30 feet, she dug up grass, sod, and moss with her powerful front feet and claws. Backing up and clawing at the same time, she managed to roll up a ball of the mixture under her belly and roll it up to the kill. The cub, that weighed about 50 pounds, cunningly tried to imitate her at the same task. Surprisingly, he did very well and got a fair-sized ball about halfway to the goal when it either tickled him or he decided it was more fun to play. He fell over on his back, taking the ball with him on his belly and played with it until it disintegrated into tufts of sod and grass again. Even older bears like to have fun. Once I watched two two-year-old brownies engage in a playful tussling match that was as entertaining as any circus act. Black bears are also known for their clowning, but blacks are afraid of grizzlies and would not consider a dispute with one. This morning, Jack rounded up Scrappy, Spud, and Ranger, and we rode out to the jeep that had stalled last night. In a few minutes, working in daylight now, we discovered that the feed wire to the coil had broken off. This was quickly repaired, so we threw the saddles in the jeep and the horses were happy to start back home with, with just a slap on their backsides. It was now time for another trip to the bait and then back to the river to fish a little. River is still high but fairly clear. Fishing produced no results. Hourly trips to the bait were fruitless also. Rain fell as we neared camp, and it continued all night. Friday morning, we made our first visit at daylight and went in at regular intervals throughout the entire rainy, stormy day. The wind blew upriver and in and under the spruce at our luncheon spot. Each trip took 20 minutes one way. Drying out beside a big fire took the remaining 20 minutes when another visit was due. Nothing came in all day. We saw martins, eagles, ravens, crows, grouse, blue and stellar jays, magpies, and the assortment of red squirrels who pile up the spruce cone chips at the base of the trees we sit under. Rain continued all night, and by the next morning, the river had risen to near flood stage. Patience is one of the virtues of a good hunter. We felt that we had almost exhausted our limit. The hunt had been booked for two weeks, the purpose to bag a larger-than-average grizzly. Sunday would mark the fourth week, and our departure from Smithers on the once-a-week Sunday plain was a must. There remained only Saturday morning to hunt. Surely the big fellow would find the moose bait, or one would come to the spot at Sweeten. It was still pouring as we left camp at daylight, in a rain that had continued for 36 straight hours. A stop at the moose remains was a blank. The light was too poor for pictures, 
so Chuck stopped to fish at the point while Jack and I continued to look at the bait. As we got near, we saw wolf tracks on the muddy trail, plunging our spirits to zero. Wolves are the king of bait stealers and come in at night. Grizzlies do not dispute their rights. They had eaten the bait completely and seemed to have eliminated the last glimmer of hope for the remaining hours we had left. This bait was one-fourth of a mile from a horse trail Jack had cleared along the river to the Nangis Creek. Chuck's grizzly carcass was on the bench just a short way off the trail. There were wolf tracks going that way also, and it seemed like a good idea to have a look at it. I eased my way up the steep side of the bench, and Jack continued along the trail to scout the area ahead. I had no way of knowing that the stage was set for a drama soon to unfold before my eyes. It was difficult to gain the top of the bench quietly, but as I reached the proper level, I soon saw that the bear carcass was not there. Rising one more step, I could see part of it off to the right, and scanning the brush beyond, black blotches protruded from both sides of a large spruce tree. It was a black bear. Back at the river, I had shot two arrows at a grouse sitting high in a tree. The other two arrows in my bow quiver had a plastic bag over them to keep the feathers dry. By pulling slowly on the top, I was able to remove the bag without alerting the bear. Arrow on string, I advanced two steps, cautiously looking for a hole in the brush. Putting my foot down at the second step, I was in line with a shooting hole, but I cracked a twig. The bear was standing behind a tree. As the twig snapped, the bear quickly swung his head out and looked my way. He was not certain where the sound had come from and turned his head to look the other way. I wasn't sure of the wind direction, but if the bear moved, I would not get another chance through that brush, so I shot at his head, hoping to hit him in the base of the neck. The arrow missed and chucked into a log beyond. Having been harassed by wolves and grizzlies, he instinctively sprang up the tree with woofs and growls. It was not a difficult shot. Jack had heard the rumpus and hurried over. We examined the bear. He was an old animal with teeth well-worn, a grizzled face, and a skin marred by many battles. Bear's Field Notes is produced by the team at Bear Archery. Learn more about Bear Archery and its complete suite of products at beararchery.com. Narration by Alan Johnson. Direction, production, sound mixing, and editing by Smarter Labs. Theme song by Isaac Ollie. Chapter art and design by Samantha Marksberry. Special thanks to the Bear Archery team for providing their original content to produce these episodes. 
visit bayerarchery.com to listen to all episodes, sign up for future updates, and see articles, maps, photos, videos, and more. 